welcome to the Cordwainers In Your Shoes podcast. My name is Katie Greenier and I'm the Creative Talent and Network Director at Pentland Brands. Cordwainers are shoemakers and today the Worshipful Company of Cordwainers works to promote footwear design and entrepreneurship in both education and the fashion industry. To celebrate the company's 750th anniversary, we have recorded this series to explore what it is like to live in the shoes of those who make them. I am delighted to be joined by Caroline Groves, who is a true bespoke shoemaker and master craftsman with a family heritage of craftsmanship that goes back to the original arts and crafts movement. A woman that has learned the craft through totally hard work and dedication. Things haven't always been easy, but Caroline blurs the lines between fantasy craft and fashion. She has an incredible passion for leatherwork, needlecraft, textiles and carpentry. A wonderfully calm, diligent and inspirational woman that takes craft so seriously and she is absolutely gorgeous. Caroline and I are both Cordwainers, members of the Ancient City London Livery Company, which has been supporting shoemakers for the past 750 years. Hi Caroline, how are you? I'm great, Katie. It's lovely to see you again. So I am in in the North Cotswolds. I have taken the train from Paddington and been on the most beautiful two-hour train journey or just under two-hour train journey. And I arrived in this chocolate box town. And uh, to my delight... I am now at Caroline Grove's studio. She's given me a lovely tour around. I am totally inspired. All my dreams are made here and it's just an absolute delight to be here today. So Caroline, tell me a bit about where you grew up. Uh, The North Cotswolds is my home area, my family's home area, going back quite a number of generations. I did have a little period in my early childhood when we were in Canada for a few years, but returned here at five years old and it's been home ever since. I don't blame you, it's absolutely beautiful. Tell us a bit about your family, your craft, your heritage. Yes, on both sides of my family, craftsmanship goes back some way. It all always interests people that um, a great-grandfather, uh, Walter Curtis, was a member of C.R. Ashby's Guild of Handicraft. They moved from the Mile End Road in London at the turn of the 19th to 20th century to Chipping Camden to establish a sort of alternative way of living, um, a utopia. And my great-grandfather was a cabinet maker and the longest serving member of um, Ashby's Guild. On my father's side, um, my grandfather was a Cooper. Uh, there were lots of uh, silversmiths. My um, grandmother was a great silversmith and needleworker, and I spent a lot of my childhood with her. My father always had workshops of various sorts, mainly woodworking, but he could turn his hand to anything. Yes, so I just sort of grew up you know, holidays and times I was just sort of sitting on the floor in workshops listening to whether it be, you know, banging or hammering or whatever and just, you know, all of that. I suppose, what do you call it, osmosis or whatever. It was just absorbing everything, the the rhythms, rhythms of the place. So did you realise that you were growing up, like, surrounded by all this incredible craft? No, no, I, I just assumed that's what everybody did, you know, it was the norm for me. You know, my father, I really did believe that he could make anything I didn't know that there wasn't a lot of money, you know, because if I wanted anything, 
dad would make it. And it was only as I grew up and realised, you know, some of the things other people were having that weren't made that, you know, realised there was a different world out there. But I think, you know, I grew up with that and it sort of can do attitude. If you need something, you look at how you can make it or, you know, produce it yourself. That's so incredible. Did you know that you had this gift yourself? No, I was fascinated. And so whenever my grandmother was making things, needlework or whatever, I would want to be doing that with her. And so I was doing a lot of sewing from a young age. In fact, the only prize I've ever won was I was at a little convent school just for a couple of years as a young teenager and I won the middle school sewing prize. That's my claim to fame. And (laughs) in those days, I was sewing every thing that I wore outside of school and my parents would get so angry with the sound of the sewing machine beavering away at night so in the end I had to lie down on my chest on the carpet with my sewing machine in front of me so that the carpet would insulate all the noise in the house I could just be I'd be making my loons particularly I loved loons I was making to go to discos on Friday nights and yeah (laughs) yeah you talk about in your teens maybe late teens that you were directionless How did that come about? Because you had all of this inspiration. Yes. How Um, did that come about? Yeah, it's difficult looking back to to know a big event for me was um, a tragedy in my mid-teens that did change the the family forever. And it meant I wasn't able to um, stay at school after 16. Not that I was passionate about wanting to stay at school because I I didn't know what I would have studied at A-level. And I just somehow wanted to get out in the big wide world and I'd heard about kibbutz in Israel. Uh, I'm not Jewish but I was fascinated about the kibbutz movement. So at at 17 um, I got a one-way flight to Tel Aviv and worked on kibbutz for a year or so, hitchhiking a lot around Israel and um, then eventually working my way home via you know ferry to Piraeus and spending a little bit of time in Greece and then a magic bus that should have brought me all the way home to London but dropped me off on an autobahn outside um, Munich and uh, I, I loved it. I absolutely loved it. It was the sort of freedom being out in the in the world and the people I was meeting and but just I had no vision of what my future was going to be. Do you think any of that inspired some of your work today? Gosh I, I really don't know. Colours and the things particularly from the Middle East you know have always been something very special um to me. But I think maybe there are times when I start out on a project that I have no clear vision at all of where it is going. I think it's in the same way as I don't draw. Um, I have to start making things and see where they go. And I suppose perhaps that is a similar thing that, you know, I don't always need to know where I'm going to. I just quite enjoy the journey on the way. So what did you do when you came back to to England? Yeah, I still didn't know what I wanted to do. And um, I had some friends that were living in Oxford at the time. So that wasn't too far from um, my home. And uh, yeah, lived on a houseboat in Oxford for a while and then got drawn into the sort of local, you know, newly emerging punk scene in Oxford. And there was a particular pub, which was the first music venue for um, punk music um, before the university would allow any of their um, 
venues to have punk and it was just such a fantastic vibe just just the energy of that time I mean I'm talking the 1970s when you know we were in depression and everything was gray and dull and three-day weeks and no electricity and but you know, this was going on. You know, we'd strip the pub out of all the furniture. We had, you know, it was ticket nights three nights a week. And because of insurance, only it had to be ticketed to limit the number of people that came in. That's why all the furniture had to go out. And we'd just be pogoing all night long. And yeah, that's... Uh, so were you a punk? No, I never was a punk. And in some ways, I never sort of aspired to be a punk somehow it wasn't necessary to me um, my friends were punks and I was very involved with them and helping making clothes at one stage I worked for a local rag and bone man you know sorting um, whatever it might be army clothing and things coming in that would be then go to make blankets but I choose out things that I knew other punks would like and then I'd re take them apart and reassemble them and yeah that was always my focus just you know doing doing things maybe how would you describe your style the style of my shoes no the style of you how my, would you describe your style okay. then what was oh, your dis- my, my what was your style, style like then and just as it is now really <laughs> um just just jeans and t-shirts i i don't have a particular interest i'm always looking at other people i suppose i'm a people watcher i have a sister much younger than me and she has fantastic style sense and always is dressed you know i think she just looks beautiful she's got a fantastic eye and i enjoy watching that i have no interest in trying to make that of myself for some reason i don't know quite what quite what that's all about (laughs) maybe i need some therapy or something no i think it's amazing because you're i suppose your style isn't actually what you create and your craft yes. rather than yeah. put mm. back into you. Yes. And um, I just find that just absolutely fascinating <laughs> because, you know, you'd think that yeah. you would be totally embellished and all the stuff <laughs> yeah. that you do yeah. and your leather yeah. work and yes. you'd put that back into you, but you yeah. seem to put it back into your clients yeah. and your art and your yeah. craft. Yeah. So what happened next? What was the turning okay. point? So the turning point was that I was living in this pub and the owners of the pub were from South Wales and a, um, a friend of theirs used to come and visit at bank holiday weekends or whatever and we fell in love and he eventually became my husband we decided he was a country man really he didn't want to be in the city and uh, we decided to live here in the North Cotswolds close to my family but I still wasn't knowing what I wanted to do the real turning point came I had various jobs just sort of receptionist and you know uh, other things but Then when I was pregnant with my first child, 1983, was the first time I was sort of at at home on maternity leave. And that was the first time for a long time that I reverted to sort of wanting to do some sewing projects and things. And in the village, um, there was a taxidermist and I bought some rabbit skins from him and began to sew some little things for the baby that was coming along and just became absolutely hooked, realised I didn't want to go back into a job that was sort of meaningless for for me. And um, 
realized that leather was going to be a passion. I, I went to a local saddler to do some um, training. I didn't want to be a saddler, but I wanted to know more about the, the craft and the leather. And then subsequently, some people who've become very dear friends and mentors to me, a, a couple who are leather workers in Tetbury, sort of took me under their wing. And um, there, there's so much happened along the way, various things I did until I eventually met a, a shoemaker who'd moved out from London and was looking for help. And um, it fascinated me. And I started to help with the, on the closing side of the shoes. And over a 15 year period that I was with him, I became a full partner in his business. It was orthopedic shoemaking. So tell me more about the orthopedic part yes. of your craft. Yeah, yeah. I, I, I couldn't be where I am now if I hadn't done that time. Really what it taught me, which I often feel for, for students of footwear, it, they don't get this opportunity. It's in orthopedic work that you learn there's not just one way to make a pair of shoes. You've got to be versatile. The focus is on the client or the patient and the condition of their feet. And so the way you will um, tackle their shoes, you have to think what is most appropriate, what construction, what materials. And so there's sort of infinite possibilities. Of course, I learned more about feet and balance and things. But the drive to eventually get out of orthopedic shoemaking was this sort of growing passion for creating things and wanting the object to be the thing of interest, not the foot condition. Um, you know, really things were becoming too compromised for me and I, I had a vision of something else I wanted to do. But I'm very appreciative of, of that time that I put, put in there. I think that for me, what's brilliant is actually you're a footwear craftsman that also understands the body in terms of the foot and the the pressure points and what drives you know pain and pleasure yeah. and all of that <laughs> stuff. So not only do your 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 shoes look incredible now, how comfortable are they? I uh, yeah, I never absolutely claim that they're going to be incredibly comfortable. You know, women have to take responsibility for themselves if they are going to have quite a high heel. I will always have not reservations about them having that heel height, but um, I'm always very clear with them that they must take responsibility for that. I will bring all my experience to bear to ensure that I don't cripple them, but, you know, I can't tell them that they can wear these shoes for 12 hours straight and be comfortable. <laughs> so what was the journey from orthopedics to your incredible craftsman, needlework, leatherwork, woodwork? Yes. Like what, what, yeah. made, what was the leap? Um, the leap was that um, with my business partner in the orthopedic business, one or other of us would travel into London every week to, to see clients. And we had a, a basement in a, a building in Chilton Street in Marlebone. And um, on my weeks when I would uh, go there, I would pass by an old established women's shoemakers on the same street. And I realised you know, I was always sort of running past it, but being increasingly aware that it was looking darker and sadder and possibly not even open. And I kept meaning to go in. One day I thought, if I don't go in here now, this place is just going to have disappeared and I will have known nothing about it. So I went in and the owner 
Tony Sava, we struck up a conversation. And before the end of that conversation, I'd agreed to buy him out. He just said to me, Caroline, just come and take it over. Just come and take it over. And I said, wow. I can't do that, Tony. You know, what would it involve? <laughs> I was so bloody naive. I can't tell you. And whether I would do it again or not, I just don't. No, but again, I wouldn't be where I am now if I hadn't done that. I saw it as an opportunity for my business partner and myself to have our own presence in London. And I would, my children by now were at university and things, and I would have been prepared to have been in London more of the the time. And uh, so there was an agreement that this is what we would do. We would take the lease on of, of this building, which was a shop frontage and workshops behind and, and below, and that I would con- I would be working in there. My business partner would continue to work in the North Cotswolds, and so I'd be there to see clients all the time. L- 11th hour, my business partner pulled out. He realised that he'd already spent a significant part of his life in London. He was quite a bit older than me, and he realised he didn't want to be drawn back to London. By that time, I'd seen a vision of what I really wanted to do. The basements of this building were just full of lasts, um, lasts dating back to the 1930s and 40s. The Savas business had originated there in 1932, and their clientele had been quite fashionable women. They worked with a sort of semi-production method. They a Greek Cypriot family, and I could just see in those lasts something so different from all the orthopaedic lasts I'd been working with, and I could see the sort of glamour of it and the sculptural shapes and things. And I, I, you know, was imagining all the things I could make on them and put in the windows. And so I stepped away from the business that I was a 50% shareholder of, took nothing with me, just a few tools, and... Uh, remortgaged the house and um, began to live in London during the week, um, returning home at weekends. It was, it was bloody hard. It was so hard because I thought, again, so naive. I thought that there was ready-made clientele there, but the clientele, I hadn't done my due diligence and the, the existing clientele of the business were very aged um, <laughs> group of women, a, a lot from North London, very lovely people, many of whom expected to settle their tabs at the end of the year, not as we went along, and uh, who certainly were not paying anywhere near the price that the work needed to be. And oh, Oh, yeah, the, the stress of that time, it was so hard. I'd lived, left a well-paid job and, you know, I did question my sanity at, at times. And the other very disappointing thing about it was um, Chilton Street wasn't as fashionable as it is now. And there was so little footfall. And in the few years that I was there, the number of people that actually just walked in through the door were so few. So that was disappointing. But one day, a woman did walk in through the door, just sort of swanned in and owned the place. And she was a a South, South African woman living in London, married to a hedge fund manager. First time I'd met somebody like that. You know, I'm from the North Cotswolds. I wasn't city savvy or anything. And she just sort of sat down and started ordering shoes. Uh, I'd never heard of multi-ordering. I didn't know that wealthy people 
bought multiples of things that they wanted. You know, I've only ever worked for people who have maybe one pair of shoes a year and sometimes not even that. And she wanted colours and she wanted heels and she wanted, you know, and gosh, she, she just, she started me off and she challenged me to do better and different and we became friends and I still work for her now occasionally. Her life has changed incredibly and she can't, no longer is able to have as much as she used to. But um, if it weren't for her, there's a number of people I could name along the way, key points, when certain clients have just yeah contributed so much not just because they had the financial wherewithal but because they had a little vision of what I could be if they were able to support me and they sort of gently suggested things and what have you and yes so that started a whole a whole another sort of stage of the career what a beautiful story I can see the <laughs> shop and everything yeah. like literally it's yes. in my brain of how it was yeah. I can even hear the doorbell yes, as, yeah. as people walk in. Yes, yeah. So what is, was the next stage then? Yes. So where did you go from there? Yes. So really the benefit of doing the type of work I was doing for that woman meant that um, some of it was becoming press worthy. And one day uh, a guy just walked into the shop early one morning when I was opening up and it turned out that it was Damien Fox who was style editor of How to Spend It magazine at the time and he was just saying you know he loved my stuff and I had some vintage shoes around as well and um, he started to um, occasionally call up my shoes for a for a fashion shoot and while these things did not bring clients flooding in, it meant that, you know, when we had our first website, we were able to put mention of the sort of press coverage that we were getting. And that was heightening the profile of what I was doing. And occasionally another client would would um, come in off the back of that. And so these little building blocks began to happen and enable me to continue. I came to a stage where the lease was coming up on the building and I had to consider did I want to stay there. Uh, the rental was going up significantly and what I'd already learnt was that um, some of my most affluent clients who had London homes didn't want to come in to see me, they wanted me to go to them. And so the shop was becoming like an expensive luxury really. So around that time I brought my workshops back um, to the North Cotswolds and started a pattern of um, traveling into London or wherever else um, people needed to to see me. It's always been so difficult to get that combination right. Uh, the cost of premises in London, the family pull at this end, but consequently meaning I'm always on that bloody motorway, uh, Friday nights, oh God, all that stuff. In terms of your craft, yes. going back to your craft, when you were doing all this at the shop, how did you almost continue with the craft of the leather work and right. the needlework yes. and the yes. all the things that you put into yeah. your shoes? Right. Okay, one fabulous, well, there's many fabulous things about being in London. I love London with a passion, but it exposed me to so many other craftspeople and disciplines. In particular, I began to visit um, some 
some of the established spoke shoemakers in St. James. And I was just fascinated with the level of the hand welted work just became something that I wanted to pursue. Also building the relationships with those businesses meant that I had some extra support of colleagues that understood what I was trying to do. There were times when I felt so alone. And um, so there were people I could go and sort of you know, talk about issues with. But equally, I began to pick up some outwork from Lobs and from Fosters because there were times when, you know, I wasn't bringing in enough work. So it was then, you know, being exposed to what they did. Also, around about that time, I made connections with some book binders, other leather workers, and I was looking at ways in which I could bring some of their techniques into the work that I do. I couldn't afford to be making lots of samples at my own expense, so I would be having to find the type of client that might be open to the idea of, you know, a certain technique. And gradually, gradually, that's how I've, um, you know, progressed bringing those those other... I don't like to think of them as embellishments. I suppose they are embellishments. Did you... I, a question going back to the shop. Did you call the shop Caroline Groves? Yes, I did. I just because I didn't ask that question and I was yes. just thinking, what did you call the shop? Yes, it was called Caroline Groves. I mean, <laughs> looking back, I wonder why I did that. Because what was it called before? It was called Savas before, which was the name of the previous yeah. owners. But it obviously it, it has tied me there. But I used to think, why did I do that? You know, that's what historically hairdressers always did. <laughs> but... Uh, well, it is your name. It, yes, yes, yes. <laughs> Where do you source all your leather and other specialists that go into making a Caroline Groves pair of shoes? Yes, um, leathers. So interested in leather. I do go as regularly as I can to a, a large um, trade fair in, in Italy, Linea Pelle. Although really I'm loyal to um, uh, tanneries that I met in the early years, my best, um, my best upper leathers always come from Italy. That's so important to me. But also um, my what we call the rough stuff and the bottoming leathers, everything that makes the guts of the shoes, the stiffening, insoles, soling, stacked heels, all of that leather is English oak bark tanned leather from um, Colleton and Devon, um, the last oak bark uh, tannery in this country, I believe. And that that informs so much about my my work. That's so special to me. I don't use any preformed stiffeners or man-made um, interior reinforcements. I try to use things like in the top line of my shoes. I always use a grow grain because it creates a nice edge, but also it's reinforcement. So it's there for a purpose. It means I don't have to introduce anything else. Who and what inspires you? Gosh, the natural world, um, art, um, certain sort of art. Paolo Rego, God, smacks me right in the sternum. You know, I just look at it. Exhibiting too? Sorry? Exhibiting too soon, aren't they? Yes, I'm going to be there at the opening. (laughs) I have a client who has a fabulous collection of her work that's being shipped back for the Tate in in, just a few weeks' time. But before I knew this client, I'd always loved Paolo's work. You know, it's not always the beautiful things. It's the things that talk to you. That It's the things that you, you don't even analyse them or try to understand them. They just like smack you around the face and you think, you know, what was that all about? Uh, what else? Inspired? You know, 
all it can be very practical craft things utilitarian things things that are fit for for purpose they they speak to me too what is the handwriting and the detailing that goes into a bespoke caroline groves shoe that would be um, the way I pull materials together, I believe. So very often vegetable tanned leathers, leathers that in some ways speak to me. It's the smell of them, the feel of them, the texture, the earthiness of it. And then feeling, oh God, that would be really lovely. You know, that would just sit together. There would be a relationship between that and a wool needlepoint heel cover or a little tapestry on the toe or, or something and I've been banging on about this for for ages but I've it, it means something to me some I think there's something about the way I work which is how I imagine historically folk art was being produced it's a sort of unconscious way it's a, not a terribly designed way of putting things together it's it's more in intuitive and you bring them together and it's somehow another thing that's been said about my work often is that the shoes are like characters and I think that's a reason for that somebody wrote many years ago that they're like little pets for your feet <laughs> so do you think you tell stories for yes. your footwear and it, is that to do with the client or is that yes. to do with your your feeling when you meet the client Yes, it can be both. You know, when the synergy is really good between myself and a client, you know, one commission will lead on to another because, you know, in the talking and developing of the one commission, something else is talked about and we think, well, we can't put all that together in this shoe, so we're just going to get, have to go on and do do another shoe. And I must tell you, just I think this would really amuse you, but actually that very first client she used to pop into the shop very regularly to tell me perhaps about some super event she'd been to the previous night wearing a pair of my shoes and what had been said about them and who she'd been with and this type of thing and I made her a particular pair of shoes that um, I thought she was very pleased with but she never ever said anything about them so one day I said to her oh gosh, I'm concerned about that pair of black polka dot shoes I've made you because you've never mentioned them. And if there's anything wrong with them, then, you know, I would want to know and re redo the work. And she, this sort of smile came over her face, sort of coy, coy smile. And she said, well, actually, I could tell you a story about them. She said, we've just moved house. Her children were very small at the time, preschool, and uh, they were moving to a house in Westbourne Grove or Chepstow Villa, somewhere like that. And her husband was a collector of um, erotic art and in the previous house it had been everywhere but with the children growing up and they'd be going to school she decided that she must ask her husband that it's no longer on the walls everywhere and maybe just contained within his study or put into storage or something which he agreed to do so for Christmas that year she had a series of nudes taken of herself wearing the shoes and then bound into a ledger and put into his um in his desk in his in 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 his study so i just thought what a wonderful story so you didn't need to worry about them didn't need to worry about them at all um what's been your most challenging project or collaboration oh my goodness oh my goodness challenging in many ways it has been with my most prolific client. She has never really bought into my more character or exotic 
type of work. She's a businesswoman and she has a silhouette that she likes to create. So she has a very limited color palette that she wants to use. And she doesn't want attraction brought to the shoes or boots. It's just part of the whole um, silhouette that she gives off. And she wouldn't mind me saying she slightly has princess and the pea syndrome. So she wants things to be sleek and well fitted. But if they just touch for a moment in a certain sort of place then it'll be ah toys out of the cradle got to have a new pair made and if she hadn't been such a prolific buyer you know I would have given up on her a long long time ago but we've been through the pain barrier now we've got almost 30 pairs of lasts for every different type of shoe or boot that she could need everything from toe post lip flop everything, formal wear, business wear, casual wear. And we've been through that pain barrier and it was a pain barrier, but it was a worthwhile one. Brilliant answer. What would a normal day look like in your life? The day starts very early in the morning or very often in the night. I suppose this is because of my passion for what I do. I sometimes don't know where the dreams end and the daydreams start or I'm sort of thinking about my day coming up and I'm thinking about shoes and projects or maybe how I'll tackle a certain job and by the time I'm out of the shower and on the way to work I've got it settled in my mind just how I'm going to be tackling that if I didn't have that process going on in my head it would take me a lot longer to get started in the workshops in in the morning. What has been the most defining moment in your career? There's been a number, but I think one that will always come to mind is that I had made a pair of boots for a Russian supermodel who was living in London. She had been in Moscow and she had taken some of my cards with her to um, a couturier um, named uh, Uliana Sergeyenko, who that year was shown for the first time at Couture Week in Paris. Somebody picked up my card in her atelier in Moscow and this woman's assistant contacted me and asked to make an arrangement for her client to to meet me in London. I was excited. It seemed like, yes, this might be something, you know, a nice new client. At the time, I didn't have the shop. I didn't have premises in London, but I was a member of the arts club on Dover Street. And so we arranged to, to meet in the arts club. I parked my car in Berkeley Square, went in, waited for her to come. She was late, the usual thing. And then she came up the stairs into the area where I was sitting and she just wafted up those stairs with a whole entourage behind her and you know you would have thought she was the queen of Russia coming in she you know you could see the tiara was sparkling and I just brought a box with various sample shoes in them I didn't know then but I know now that she has feet very very similar to mine but I couldn't have got my foot into any one of those samples but she was going to get her feet into those samples whatever and didn't at that moment want to discuss what she wanted to order she just wanted to buy every one of the samples she kept passing over credit cards to me and um, then she started discussing me these shoes through an interpreter and she wanted this one in red and blue and this color and that color and everything you know I, I just I needed assistant with me to be writing down all that I just couldn't go as fast as she was you know wanting things and um, then she finally asked uh, 
did I make handbags? Well, I didn't make handbags, but I had just bought a book that a fabulous book about handbags had been produced for a guy who was establishing a handbag museum in Seoul in, in Korea. And he'd made this fabulous collection of handbags. And I was just loving this book so much because there was so much in it about the techniques and things. So I said, well, if you've got a couple of minutes, I'll go to my car. And because there's no reason I, you know, I'm a leather worker, we'll make handbags. And she said, great, you know, we'll have a drink while you go and get your book. I went to get my book. And as I was running up to Barclay Square, you know, I was trying to clock up how much had she spent. You know, it's blown my mind. And um, got back and was just showing her this book, really, because it showed styles across, uh, you know, uh, several hundred year period, the involvement of the handbag, just to try and ascertain what her style was. But it was so eclectic. And... Um, so she was just saying, I'll have one of these and I'll have one of these. And I was saying, yeah, but can I interpret it in my own way? Yeah, 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 just do whatever you want, you know. And that day started two years of solid work for this woman where I almost worked for nobody else at all because she just was so demanding of my time. And she only very occasionally has something. Now she's moved on to other things, but all these people remain as sort of, yeah, not friends, but, you know, people you have happy memories with. What have you done that you're most proud of? I suppose in my life, of course, my children and my grandchildren, of course, that. I am proud of myself for sticking it out in my work. I have had these fabulous times, but I've had some god-awful times as well. And, you know, I've wondered where the next crust is going to come from. And I've really wondered, you know, how did I arrive here? Why couldn't I have just done something more conventional? But, you know, I think for my children to have seen that, that's, you know, it's character building, you know, you know, the human experience, you know, should be full. And definitely it, it is for me. So uh, on that question, what do you think you would have done if you hadn't been a bespoke accessories, footwear, uh, designer, yes. maker, craftswoman? Yeah, I, I really suspect had I at school, and I think this would be general, really for so many people, if I'd had more exposure at school to the possibility of the areas that you could go into if you were a practical person or somebody that wanted to pursue a craft, just had no type of exposure. You, you know, you thought if you wanted to be, I don't know, you were interested in textiles or something, you could only be a dressmaker perhaps in the local town or something. You know, you didn't know that there were careers out there. I remember going to an amazing place in North London, Janie Liptrot, I think her name is, and she's a textile conservator. We share a number of clients because those clients will also buy, maybe through Kerry Taylor auctions or somewhere, um, you know, vintage couture. They, they, they'll buy contemporary couture, but they'll buy vintage couture and then they'll want to have it conserved. I've been in Janie's um, workshops and I've been in there and she's got young women and apprentices um, working on the most amazing conservation and renovation work. And I just, the first time I was in there, I just thought, I just didn't know anything like this existed. If my eyes could have been open to that from school, that's exactly where I would have liked to have been. I don't think you should have any, like, your career has been incredible, even though sometimes it seems hard. Yes. 
I mean, I'm sitting in this room just full of these most gorgeous units. You know, it's like just this beautiful, beautiful sculptural pieces all around me. And yeah, absolutely bloody awesome. Awesome. Thank you. So how do you give back? During the London years, I always had um, work experience students and um, built some great relationships with those people that have continued to this day. Those people have gone on into industry. And even when in industry, they come back to me because you know there's the sort of occasions when they're dealing with factories who are saying that it's not possible to produce what they're wanting to produce and so they'll ask me to make a prototype and it's been more difficult with the um, being in the country um, to offer those opportunities the traveling situation is difficult for so many but I've currently got uh, an apprentice who who is wonderful and I'm sure that we're going to have an absolutely long-term relationship Lots of people contact me, lots and lots of people contact me from the shoe world wanting advice or help and in as much as I'm able to give it and the amount of time I've got able to give, I, I think I am pretty open to people so long as they're prepared to put in the work themselves you know god helps them who help yeah. themselves and if i can see they've been beavering away and trying and trying they just need a little help to get over the next stage that's where i like to come in and so tell us about the queen elizabeth scholarship trust yes i'm not an authority on it but it um it's a, an organization that exists to financially help uh, craftspeople that are either finding it difficult to get into a craft they want either an apprenticeship or a scholarship and um there's quite a few hoops to jump through it's you know those that are able to be awarded either an apprenticeship or a a scholarship really have shown their commitment to what they're doing in the case of Lily it means that um, Kest are supporting her salary and helping me towards her salary for two years Um, and the reason I really really wanted Lily was not because of the help towards the salary which is very acceptable but because Lily had already done eight years in this industry with various shoemakers and she was humble enough to take an apprenticeship with me and you know that just spoke volumes about who she was and I knew immediately I could work with with this woman. So I'm now going to ask you some quick fire questions which I'm sure you're going to love. Oh, no. Oh, no. Oh, yes. If you could talk to the Prime Minister, what would you say? Feed the children. What was the last thing you made? I've recent, the most recent thing I'm I'm working on is um, needlepoint heels for a client. She wanted me to depict Neptune in some sort of way. Wow. And it's taken me about 40 hours so far just to do the background needlepoint. Oh and now God. I'm struggling with how do I get <laughs> Neptune infused into this in some way. See, that's not a normal quick fire question. <laughs> yeah. Quick fire answer. Sorry. No, that's all sorry, right. Sorry. Marmite, love it or hate it? Love it. <laughs> if you were stranded on a tropical island, what two things would you take? Certainly a knife, that would be first and foremost. Well, you need that for your food as well. A knife and, I don't know, a bottle of something strong, I think. Perfect. (laughs) When are you most productive? In the mornings. Tea or coffee? Coffee. Could you survive in the wilderness for a week? Yes. Would you rather be too hot or too cold? Too cold. On a scale of one to ten, how cool are you? 
Oh gosh, I, I, cool. I can't, can't see myself in that context at all. Maybe a four. <laughs> <laughs> so, Caroline, if I want a bespoke pair of shoes made, how do I get in contact with you? The quick way is through Instagram, Caroline Groves Atelier. My website is purely Caroline Groves. There's methods through there to get directly in touch with me. Telephone, of course. Amazing. Thank you so much for your time. I've loved looking around your studio. You're a complete inspiration to me. Thank you, Katie. And um, it's been an absolute pleasure to walk in your shoes. For more interest in the Cordwainers livery, please visit our website, cordwainers.org, or our Instagram, Worshipful Company of Cordwainers. <laughs>